Well, this morning, we begin a two-week journey in Ephesians chapter 2 entitled, By Grace. And my hope for us is that over the next two weeks, we will both be reminded of the grace God offers us in Christ, and we will be stirred up to live lives reflective of that grace in obedience to him. This morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start by telling you a few stories from my life that have caused me to see things from a different perspective, to see God in a different perspective. There have been times in my life that have given me great perspective experiences that have caused me to understand something more fully than I previously understood. To name a few, these experiences gave me wonderful, wonderful perspective on God's love for me. First, in Colorado, nestled in the mountains outside of Leadville, Colorado, there's a mountain called Mount Elbert. It stands at 14,433 feet above sea level. It's the tallest mountain in the Rocky Mountains, the tallest mountain in Colorado. And as a teenager, I had the privilege of going to Colorado and hiking 14ers. There are 54 of them in the state. I haven't done all of them, but there are folks that have multiple times. And on this particular journey, we would summit Mount Elbert, the third tallest mountain in the continental United States. And I remember as a 14, 15 year old being, uh, driving by this mountain and seeing it way off in the distance and feeling the weight of understanding even just a little bit that that day was going to start early and it was going to end late. And one of the things about climbing 14ers is you get to the summit and you can only stay a little while. There's a little registry up there and you take a photo and you eat a protein bar or whatever, and you sign the little registry. And then it's time to, to, um, go down because, uh, storms move in very quickly. And you don't want to be, you don't want to get uh, 14,433 feet above sea level to be struck by lightning and die on top of a mountain. And so you summit quickly and you descend quickly. But I remember as I'm standing on top of Mount Elbert, I'm looking out all across the Rocky Mountains and realizing that I'm at the tallest point in the state of Colorado, the third tallest in the United States, and the God who created those mountains created me. And in that, I understood something of the grandeur of our God and the smallness of who I was. Second, standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon right after college, where with great excitement, I jumped out of the car, the rental car we had rented, and I, uh, car still running, I jumped out, locked the door, closed the door in excitement to get to the edge of the Grand Canyon to see this vast expanse where at some points goes a mile down and 18 miles wide in some places, only to realize that the car was running, the gas was going down, and there are not a lot of locksmiths in the Grand Canyon. And I didn't have much money. I was a poor college kid who had saved all of their change to travel across the United States with a buddy. But I can rem- and we did get a locksmith and it did cost me a lot of money. But I can remember standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking down with the sunset beating and these vibrant colors coming out and thinking, my God created this. And he created me in his image. What must that mean for me as an image bearer of God. Witnessing the birth of all of my children, specifically my first child, because he was the first, is the closest I've ever understood to what God sacrificed for me in Christ Jesus. For my sin, 
as I'm witnessing the birth of my first child and I have this love in my heart for somebody I've never met. Crazy love that I can't explain. I can't tell you why. Never met, never seen him before. But in that moment, I had just a glimpse of what God gave up for me in Christ when he sacrificed his son on my behalf. And yet, in that moment, I recognized the magnitude of my sin because I loved my son, though he hadn't done anything necessarily to deserve that love. I was an enemy of God when he sacrificed his son for me. And then as an eighth grader, having grown up in the church, but never really understanding the gospel until I was at a a retreat, a camp, and I heard for the first time that it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was my sin that separated me from God. It was Christ's work and Christ's spirit, the Holy Spirit, that would draw me to himself and change my life forever. You see, I believe it's right in order for us to see God's grace rightly. We must first remember our plight without his grace. And I believe Ephesians chapter two does just that today. Without seeing the depth of our sin, we're prone to cheapen the grace of God that ransoms us from our sin. I think we often see others' sin as heinous or we see the sin of the world as grievous. But our sin we tend to place as not so bad or not as bad as the next guy. Very much what Brad said in introductory comments is true. We see sin as a problem from without rather than from within. But I believe thinking rightly on our sin today will help us see the magnitude and the majesty of God's grace to us in Christ. Some of us will have to remember our sin-riddled past by association, while others will be quite aware of our plight before Christ. Some of us have grown up in homes where Christ's word was proclaimed and the gospel was present. And perhaps you came to faith at an early age, and you might even consider your testimony boring. We'll see this morning that that is far from the truth. While others of us bear the scars of this life. And each of those scars bears for us the story of our past, a life separated from God, lost in our sin, and headlong into our selfishness. By God's grace, his word makes clear to us our spiritual condition apart from Christ. If you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And I believe in your pew Bible this morning, it is... Uh, on page 976. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to give you just a little quick background on the book of Ephesians as we start into chapter 2 this morning. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who were in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Jesus. This letter claims to have been written by the Apostle Paul and for the most part has met little to no resistance from scholars or skeptics throughout the years. This letter from Paul was considered one of the prison epistles, having believed to have been written from prison, a letter that was to be circulated in and around the churches in the uh, Asia Minor area near Ephesus, what would be considered today modern-day Turkey. The purpose of this letter seems to be to give the reader a greater view of God's redemptive work through Christ and call him to live obediently for the sake of Christ. Two major themes that emerge from the book that Paul wants his readers to grasp. First, the mystery of God revealed through Christ Jesus, that the kingdom of God is now available to all, not just the Jew, but to the Gentile as well. News that we would do well to be quite grateful for this morning as Gentiles. Second, the mystery of God is revealed through the church, the bride of Christ. Paul spends much time revealing to the Ephesians the rich blessings that they have in Christ. Remember in verse uh, 1 of chapter 1, Paul says he writes to the saints. So these are believers, these are followers of Christ. But this is a message that has hope for those caught in the hopelessness of this world too, as we've already heard. Hope that comes from being known by Christ. Hope that can only come from being known by Christ. And today as we peer into this wonderfully freeing, reassuring passage that I'm convinced were we to preach to ourselves every day, it would be to the benefit of the body of Christ and our own souls as well. Rightly seeing the depth of our lostness and separation from God will aid us in seeing the height of God's grace to us in Christ. You see, none of us have ever been physically dead before with experience of being able to recall what physical deadness is like. But we have something far worse that I fear we may not fully comprehend. Spiritual deadness and therefore separation from God without Christ. I don't mean to say that I think we're all unbelievers. I mean to say that I think so often When we read chapters like Ephesians 2, we want to get to what we would consider the good stuff. We want to get right to chapter 2, verse 4, but God. But my contention this morning is that in order to rightly understand but God, we have to recognize what God has saved us from. Our outline for this morning will follow this summary statement. Those who are in Christ have been saved from spiritual deadness 
by grace through faith. We have been saved to spiritual life in Christ for the demonstration of the immeasurable riches of his grace. Don't worry, I'll repeat that as we get to those points. First, in verses 1 to 3, we're going to see that those who are in Christ have been saved from spiritual deadness. Those who are in Christ have been saved from spiritual deadness. Deadness. Verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So good news, friends, Ephesians chapter two, verse one, you were dead. That's who you were. You weren't sick. You weren't mortally wounded. You were by nature dead. I was by nature dead. How do we know that? How can we make such a claim? Well, we've just read it in Ephesians chapter two. Verse 3 tells us that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're going to go on a little journey through our Bible. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. Or we heard from Psalm 51 this morning, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, not only... Were we born into, into sin as a result of our parents being sinners? Our first parents, Adam and Eve, are sinners as well. And was not this Jesus' point in John chapter 8, verse 7, when he said to the adulterous woman's accusers, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And her accusers knew that they were not without sin and only Christ was able to pick up a stone. But he didn't. He extends grace to this adulterous woman. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know other scriptures like the law was given to show us that we're incapable of keeping it. That Romans 3.10 says that there is no one righteous. No, not one If you remember with me the story of the rich young man in Mark chapter 7, verses 17 through 22, this man comes to Jesus and he wants to follow him. And he says, what must I do? And Jesus says, well, keep all the commandments. And the young man says, well, I've done all those things since I was a kid. And Jesus says, well, then sell all all that you have and give to the poor. Because this man had great wealth. And it says the man turned and went away saddened because he had great wealth. He was unwilling to give up 
what he treasured the most in order to get what he needed the most. Even if keeping the law was possible as to not murder and covet and take the law out in Matthew chapter 5, he says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the hell of fire. Or everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Friends, we must see that our sin is damnable before our righteous, holy Father in heaven. I'm concerned we too quickly want to get to those glories we talked about in verse 4. But we run the risk of cheapening the very grace with which Jesus' blood was spilled on our behalf. Remembering where we have come from is paramount to remembering where we're going. This is no rags to riches story. This is, for all who are in Christ, a death to life story. One theologian said this recently. If you see Jesus as more glorious and more precious than anything else in this world, then you are a walking miracle, a new creation. Because only those who have redeemed eyes, redeemed hearts, can see Jesus as more glorious than anything this world offers. A walking miracle. So brother or sister in Christ, if you came to saving faith early, praise God for that. It isn't boring. It's beautiful. Are we not as parents praying that for our children? Oh, that our children would have boring testimonies in that regard. Do you really understand who you were before Christ intervened on your behalf? We saw that we're dead in our trespasses and sins in in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. God does not help those who help themselves because dead people are dead. They're unable to help themselves in any way. And we're going to see in verse 4 and beyond that God helps the helpless. God helps the dead. The prince of the power of the air is a name for Satan, and the sons of disobedience are those that are under his influence, living lives of disobedience to God. Romans 1, verses 18 through 21 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, this is who we are by nature. Our sinful selfishness blinds us to the nature and character of God. And we are only able to see what we want to see. We are futile in mind and hostile to God. This is why Paul reminds the readers, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is the doctrine of total depravity. As one theologian defined it, this is all aspects, that is total depravity, 
all aspects of our being have been infected with the deadly disease of sin. All aspects of our being have been infected with the deadly disease of sin. That means that we're not capable of responding to God apart from his grace. And again, I'm convinced that our churches today are filled with people that would much prefer to see themselves as sick than dead. I recently asked one of our college students, Patterson, after listening to him speak about his time on mission in Haiti over spring break, with great maturity in his words and gospel on his lips and sensitivity to God's spirit in his words. I said, Patterson, when's the last time you've stopped to think about all that God's done in your life over the last two or three years because the man has gone from death to life? So what comes out of him? He's not perfect, but what comes out of him is the gospel. What comes out of him is grace and gratefulness in his heart. I ask him that because remembering who we were in our dead state heightens us to God's grace to us in Christ. And those who were in Christ have been saved from spiritual deadness. Our second part of our summary statement. So I'll read the first part again. Those who are in Christ have been saved from spiritual deadness. By grace through faith, we have been saved to spiritual life in Christ. By grace through faith, we have been saved to spiritual life in Christ. This is verses 4 through 6 and verses 8 and 9. Listen to 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Praise God for verse 4. But God, one of the most beautiful conjunctions in all of the Bible. We were enemies of God following our own path. A path that leads to our destruction. But... God, rich in mercy, motivated by his love. What does it mean that God is rich in mercy? It means that he has an unending wealth of mercy to dispense on those that are his. Rich in mercy. This mercy of Christ and of God knows no end. That's why for the believer, passages like Psalm 103 verse 12 are comforting. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Or 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, do you understand that if we don't rightly see that we were dead before Christ... We can cheapen the very grace with which he ransomed us. We don't see it as detestable. We don't see it as separating. We see it as comparative to the next guy. Or we marginalize it. Or we rationalize it. It's merciful of God to save sinners. We were enemies of God. Headlong into our sin. But God, rich in mercy. Verses 4 and 5, he goes on. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It sounds an awful lot like Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, doesn't it? 
but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. We've received reconciliation because of God's rich mercy and because of his love with which he loved us. Verse six, and he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice in verse five, the text says that we are made alive. We're made alive and seated with Christ. All of this highlights our union with Christ. We're made alive. We're raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ. These are things God has done, not things man has done. To put it another way, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. God's gracious act to us in saving us is full and final, and we are forever changed. Like an eighth grader who heard the gospel and responded in faith. Hasn't been perfect, hasn't always been pretty. But by God's grace, from eighth grade into today, I have a more full understanding of that which God saved me from. And in that I can rejoice because I understand to that which God saved me to. This is why simply being morally good is not good enough. This is why coming to church is not good enough. Christ died that we might seek sanctification in every area of our life. Just as soon as we feel like we've got control, whatever that looks like, on our sin, if we're in prayer and community with other believers, then it becomes apparent real quickly other areas of deficiency where we need to submit unto Christ. And friends, I want you to hear me say this morning, that should encourage you, not discourage you. Because in that, you're submitting yourself unto Christ that he might sanctify every area of your life for which he saved you. The word Paul uses in the Greek for both being raised and seated with him is the same root word we get our word sink. So you think about when you sink your phone to your computer or your camera to your computer. If you're still using a house phone, I can't help you. Or a Polaroid. What are they called? Polaroid. All right. In ways we can't fully understand or comprehend, This means that when Jesus raised from the dead, conquered sin and death forever, all those who would come to know him also conquered sin and death forever because our lives are synced with him. Because Jesus has all rule and authority over the principalities of this world, we too have authority over Satan and his enemies in Christ and only as we walk by the Spirit. This means that we no longer have to be ruled by the sinful desires of our flesh because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 say, For this reason, because I have heard your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ 
the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Because of our union with Christ, we can resist sin. Finally, I want us to see that not only is our salvation a gift, but the very faith with which we call upon the Lord is a gift. Verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Because all aspects of our being have been infected with the deadly disease of sin. Remember that definition of total depravity. Total inability then is that we are not capable of responding to God apart from grace. This means when God draws man to himself, even the very act of that man's faith is an extension of God's grace. This should cause us no trouble. In fact, this simply reinforces that salvation is totally from God. And move us to worship. Theologian R. Kent Hughes describes faith as belief plus trust. Belief plus trust. Well, that belief plus trust is God's gift to you in salvation, just as salvation itself is a gift. Praise God for his mercy and grace in Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, the totality of of salvation is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because all aspects of our life have been infected by the deadly disease of sin, were we able to claim that it was our faith that trusted in Christ? Our pride would glorify self, not the giver of the gift. Think about Paul's life for a minute. Prior to Christ... He describes it for us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 11. As he lays out all the reasons if anyone had to hope in the flesh, he had it. But he says in verses 7 and 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So our salvation is not a result of works but of God's grace. Before we move on to our next section, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, my prayer is that you would find great hope in your inability to save yourself because God brings about salvation for his glory. Our sin separates us from our creator God who is holy and therefore unable to have any part in sin. But because of God's great mercy, He sent his one and only son to live a perfect life, fully God and fully man, to be tempted in every way that we're tempted. And yet, without sin, he willingly laid down his life, dying a death he didn't deserve, 
to give you and I a life we don't deserve. Three days after his death, God raised him from the dead, forever satisfying the wrath of God, conquering sin and death. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, where he rules and reigns forevermore. And he invites us to repent of our sins and turn from sin and place our faith on his finished work, which forever satisfies God's wrath. And then in daily obedience, walk in faith. You know, Brad mentioned it early in the service. If you'd like to visit with somebody about what that looks like immediately following the service, some of our staff and elders will be down here in front available to visit with you. So those who are in Christ have been saved from spiritual deadness. By grace through faith, we have been saved to spiritual life in Christ. Finally, our third point. We've been saved to spiritual life in Christ for the demonstration of the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is verses 7 and 10. Verse 7. Let's start in in, uh, verse 5 at the end. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's stop there for just a minute. So we're saved by grace through faith to put on display the immeasurable riches of his grace in and through us. We're image bearers of the glory of God, purpose to put on display his glory. It's the reason for the breath that's in our lungs. The text says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages is one generation commending to the next the glories of Christ. We're followers of Christ. The demonstration of God's grace. We are, as Piper rightly asserted, miracles of God having moved from death to life. I believe verse 10 helps us Work this out. It says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're God's workmanship, his hands and feet to a lost world to do good works. Those good works that tell of the wonders and the mysteries of God revealed in Christ Jesus and to spread the name of Jesus. We should, as the church, have an increasing desire for the glory of God to be present in this place and wherever we go because of what he has done. You who are in Christ were created in him for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. We know that we're not saved by works, but because of his grace extended to us, we do works in obedience to him and for his glory. Listen as I read Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, considering one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Piper rightly said recently regarding this tension between 
working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That our working is not added to God's working. Our working is God's working. He says of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, of Paul's working. Not nothing that Paul did added to God's working. It was produced by God's working. Notice the contrast in Ephesians chapter 2 between verses 2 and 10. Verse 2, when we were walking in the passions of our flesh, it says, in which you once walked. So this is who we were. And then in verse 10, it says, for we, has, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God perfor- be prepared beforehand, what? That we should walk in them. This is part of our new identity in Christ, no longer enslaved to the desires of the flesh, no longer only seeking the pleasures of self, but now by the blood of Christ, we seek the denial of self and the exaltation of Christ. And of these good works, God tells us that they were prepared beforehand. So we seek to lay aside self and submit ourselves to Christ daily that we may walk in these good works. This is a principle we seek to teach our children that we would be willing to serve others in our family before we serve ourselves. But you ever notice how fast the biggest piece of pizza disappears from the box? In our house, there's lots of dibs going on for things, except they, they just say, I call. I call first shower. I call first song. I call first fill in the blank of the easiest task. But this is to be expected of kids. And so with great patience, we seek to instruct them that life with Christ is modeled after Christ as one of self-sacrifice and seeking the interest of others. And so with great patience, we teach ourselves the same. Martin Luther said it this way about the tension of faith and works. He says, faith, however, is a divine work in us. It changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes altogether different men in heart and spirit and mind and power. And it brings with it the Holy Ghost. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for those to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question arises, it has already done them. And is always at the doing of them. You see, standing at the top of Mount Elbert, overlooking all the Rockies, gave me an appreciation for my smallness in the bigness of God. Having children gave me a glimpse of what it must have been like for God to sacrifice his son for my sin when I was an enemy. And passages like today's passage, Ephesians chapter 2, helped me understand just how dead I truly was. But God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved me, made me alive together with Christ. This truth, I really believe we are to remember daily in order that we not abuse the grace extended to us in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, take heart today that God and God alone is able to raise the dead. Take heart that God and God alone is able to replace hard hearts of stone with hearts of flesh that beat for him. And those that are in Christ have been saved from spiritual deadness by grace through faith. We have been saved to the spiritual life in Christ for the demonstration of the immeasurable riches of his grace. 
And my prayer for us today is that we would grasp how utterly hopeless we were condemned in our sin before Christ in order that we might rightly worship our great God and King in the newness of life he offers. We sang Amazing Grace earlier. John Newton, who authored that hymn, said this. You're probably familiar with this quote. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to do what is good. I am not what I hope to be soon. Soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that we are not what we used to be. And though we are not what we soon will be, we thank you that your spirit is at work in our lives, molding us and making us like your son, Jesus. God, that we can think on because of Ephesians 2 and because of even the depth of our own sin that which we are keenly aware. Father, we can think on who we once were, that we were spiritually dead and separated from you. But because of your mercy and your rich love, you saw fit to extend grace to sinners such as us. And Father, my prayer is that we would walk as those who understand that you alone can rescue. You alone can save. May we do this for your glory. Amen.